So I'm thinking that uh, Christ the King Sunday sounds really anachronistic today. Outdated language announcing a dead concept. Monarchies have been out of favor for a long time, having succumbed to the advance of democracy. So kingship seems really dated. Actually, this day ends the church year, as you heard earlier. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent and the first Sunday of the new church year. But this Christ the King Sunday wasn't added to the liturgical calendar until 1925, when Europe was in massive disarray following World War I and colonialism was at its worst. Less than 15 years later, the world was engulfed in World War II. And after that finally ended, no one was clamoring for a return to monarchy, despite the sweet antics of the British royalty. But, you know, our scriptures are filled to the brim with talk about kings and queens and kingdoms. And as if to underscore the point, If you look up in the apps, you'll find King Jesus sitting there on a throne. Who does that speak to today? It works within the artistic and architectural program of this space, but we probably wouldn't dream up the image of a king today to express our own spiritual moment. Still, the image haunts our tradition our Christmas stories that we'll begin hearing soon will tell us that Jesus was born of the house and lineage of David, the righteous king of Israel. And then, as the Gospels report at the end of his life, that's the question the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, will ask Jesus when he stands at trial for sedition. Are you the king of the Jews? And as we all know, ultimately, democracies answered the question of political authority by stipulating the people should hold it, and they would choose their leaders who would exercise power on their behalf for a limited time. That way, political authority could be temporized. In order for that to work, the people had to have confidence that the system was reasonably trustworthy to produce competent outcomes, evidently an experiment still in the making. They entrusted authority to a democratic process instead of a genetic lineage of monarchs that produced wildly divergent results. In the worst-case scenario, a bad president would last only a few years, whereas a lousy monarch could last a generation or more dribbling forward through incompetent offspring throw in religious devotion for divine right of kings, and the stage is set for a particularly noxious outcome. Democracies have attempted to pull apart the tangle of religion and politics. Our nation is a prime example. And of course, we've seen some really egregious expressions of that struggle over the centuries. And now we have the evangelical support of Senate candidate Roy Moore. 
But you know, we can't escape this problem of religion in politics by saying our faith has nothing to do with politics, not when we have that picture of a king up in our mosaics. As our friend Christopher Morse has pointed out, Jesus is Lord was the first creed of the early Christians. It sounds a great affirmation, which it is. But proclaimed in first century Palestine, it also rang with the great denial, Caesar is not Lord. In other words, to say Jesus is Lord was an act of sedition. It was siding with him and all that he stood for over the other temporal rulers of the day. Of course, with the resurrection, the idea of Jesus as Lord ascended into the stratosphere, elevating him into lordship over all creation, all things. That accounts for our stylized picture for him up there. But, you know, we might say, well, so what? What does that even mean to sharp 21st century cynics? Well, you know, Jesus gives us a clue in our gospel lesson. His words are declamatory, but we should probably read them more like a parable. They have the ring of a parable. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to the ones on his right hand, the sheep, the king will say, Come, you who are blessed of my father, for I was hungry and you fed me and thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you gave me clothing. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And then to those on his left, the goats, he will send away saying, You gave me no food or drink, nor did you welcome me or visit me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do to me. Now, notice that this king, who is pronouncing judgment, does not privilege tribes, political tribes here. Nor does he privilege one family, one nation, one race, one gender over another. Notice, too, that there is nothing here about creeds and doctrines. And I should emphasize that this is the only description of the so-called last judgment in the New Testament. This is what we've got to go on, if you will. The key ingredient to the Lord's judgment boils down to something rather simple, really. Painfully simple, but also evidently quite difficult. He privileges the least among us. The poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned. But there's more. He not only privileges the least, but he says that to look them in the face is to see Jesus himself. It's an intensely personal revelation. 
personal and relational, which really makes quite a lot of sense given his earlier command that above all else we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as you've heard as a recurring theme here for me at Christ Church, love is as love does. Love is principally an action, not a feeling. We can't hear this enough because we screw this up all of the time in our lives and in our world. Feelings may accompany an action, but love is as love does. Boy, is that hard for us to get. This remains a very difficult lesson. And when earlier we heard him say, you know, some weeks ago, that we were to love not only our families and friends, but our enemies as well, we almost feel an inward rebellion against that. Because we know how we feel about our enemies. Jesus' lordship is unlike anything the world has yet experienced. Even Christians have had a hard time accepting the ramifications over the years, given our propensity to privilege our biases and prejudices. You know, we're like everyone else in this matter in terms of our tendencies. We privilege our own theological point of view, of course, whatever it might be. Historically, we've separated people into those who have the right theologies, the right religious allegiances, not to mention right political party affiliations. Our news is saturated with stories about all the ways we slice and dice up the human community. I bet if we took a, a quick look through the newspaper, we'd find maybe a majority of the stories are a variation on that theme. Generally, the very last thing on our minds is wondering how we can love better. That's true for me, if I were to confess it. That's why this passage from Matthew is so striking. And why the church has tended to ignore its ramifications so very often. Because you can sense that if we were to follow the pattern Jesus sets forth here, all humans would share the same relative standing. That our collective life would be structured around the God-given dignity and value of every human being. You sense that, right? Up there on the throne, Jesus seems distant and remote, Sometimes that distance can seem oddly comforting in the I've got the whole world in my hands sort of way. At least I have found it to be true from time to time. But, but you see, if we really want an intimate encounter with him, then we bring our eyes of faith to look at the sick, hungry, homeless, oppressed and imprisoned in person. Look into the face of one of the least, the vulnerable, the weak, the children, and see there the face of God. 
Friends, this, this instruction is shaping the ministry of Christ's church more and more. This is why we've established another ministry in Washington Heights, why, we're, why we've chosen to work with largely immigrant mothers with children zero to three years of age under the banner of breaking the back of poverty in a zip code. That's why we built a church in a community center in a desperately poor neighborhood of Cartagena, Colombia, and why we serve 100 meals a day to children, and why we created a microfinancing program there. This is why we serve the homeless a hot meal at Christ Church every Sunday night, and why we partner with the Methodist Home for Nursing and Rehabilitation. In these and many other ways, we want to see the face of our King and Sovereign Lord. For our part, said Mother Teresa, what we desire is not a class struggle but a class encounter in which the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. Because the gaze, of course, isn't just one way, the gaze is two-way. We are meant to be seen as well. In this sense, rich and poor are relative terms, inviting intimate human community. Of course, we can do that for each other right here as well. In fact, that's our call. And I would tell you the point of it. <laughs>